Please pray with me. Lord, I'm so grateful for the account of your servant Abraham and all that it teaches us about your trustworthiness and the model of faithful obedience. Lord, I ask that you'd help me as I preach now. I pray that you would open our hearts to hear your truth. I pray for each one of us, Lord, that you would advance the story of what you're doing in our lives. For I ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this is the second sermon in our new sermon series for Lent, which I'm calling Extending Grace. That is the first two words of our forward vision statement as a church. We are a church that is extending grace, discipling generations. And extending is a way of suggesting and even compelling us to reach out. The Great Commission says to go and make disciples so that the Christians in the world are meant to be on mission. We're supposed to pass this along to extend but not just extend, but extend grace. So that gets into the message of what it is that we are bringing. Now, what is the message of grace? Well, there are a number of different ways you could say it. Um, One simple way is to say that Jesus is Lord and Savior. You hear that a lot, and those are true facts, but to just state facts about God is not enough. To speak from a place of personal experience about how those facts have borne truth in your life is infinitely better. When you can say, I know that the Lord is the Lord, and I know that he's a savior, and let me tell you why, and you can share from your personal story some of how God has proven that to be true, your witness is so different. And keep in mind that that believers are called to be witnesses in the world, and a witness is someone who's in a courtroom setting has called in because they've seen or heard something. They're eyewitnesses. They give an account. They say, I know this to be true. And so we're called to be witnesses in the world. We're called to extend grace. And the grace message is about God's lordship and being our savior. So the question becomes, what does it mean to call him Lord? In other words, how does he rule? What kind of a Lord is he? Is he a good Lord? Is he a bad Lord? Is he trustworthy? Is he dependable? What is your experience of God if you call him your Lord? What does that look like? And what does it mean that he's a savior? How does he save? And save from what? These and other kinds of questions are what have to come up if we're going to be a church that's extending grace. Now, my text today has this bold statement, which is what inspired the songs we've been singing already. God says, I am your shield. A shield is a protector, a defender. It's, It's something that we can be comforted by. God is saying, I am that for you. And he's speaking this to Abram. Now, I want to invite you to turn in a pew Bible to Genesis, beginning first book in the Bible. It's probably somewhere around page 15 or thereabouts, or Genesis 15 is what we're going to. That's our text. So turn there, and we're going to see some things. Um, when we start talking about the message of grace, to me, it's helpful to go back to beginnings. Genesis is the first book. It tells us of how God's interactions with people have gone from the very first days. Now, let me tell you what Genesis um, tells us about what God is doing in the world, what his intentions are, and then how he goes about it. His intentions are to call a people through the patriarch Abram. By the way, his name is Abram, which means exalted father, and he later is renamed by God Abraham, which means father of many, father of many nations. So he's not just an exalted father. God says, no, you're the father of many because of what I'm going to do in your life. So he chooses one individual, and he says, my blessing will be upon you, and through your offspring, all the nations will be blessed. All people will be blessed. And as we'll see towards the end in uh, Galatians, 
the Apostle Paul tells us that he is looking ahead, that Genesis is looking ahead to Jesus, his offspring, through whom all people will be blessed. But I don't want to get there just yet. So let me back up to Genesis and Abraham's call. The big question in here for Abraham and those of us that are reading is, how will he respond when the circumstances in his life seem to be at odds with the Word of God? And my call to worship this morning was for you to think about your story, your interaction with God, assuming that you know the Lord. And if you don't, it might start today. I trust that it will. I hope that it will. I pray that it will. But as you've walked with the Lord, what has that been like? What happens when you feel like God has said something or made a promise, and then the circumstances don't match it? How do you respond? In Genesis 15, we see Abram or Abraham responding in faith and God calling him righteous because of that response. So he's modeled for us the right way to respond. I'm going to trust God's word despite my circumstances because he's a trustworthy Lord. How will you respond when your circumstances don't line up with God's promises? And there are a ton of promises, by the way, for believers. Things like Behold, I am with you always. Jesus said that before he returned to the Father. Um, I will send my spirit to empower you. There are promises about God's blessings as well. And to not worry about food or clothing and those things. Don't be anxious about that. God knows you need them. He'll provide. He's the provider. But what do you do in the moment when it seems like he's not providing? That's the moment when your faith is being tested. And Abraham gives us a picture of this. Now, let me tell you a personal story. As I think back over my own account, my family's account of walking with the Lord, when I left engineering and we went, into, uh, we went from Chicago to Pittsburgh, um, I started doing an internship at a church. But Heather, who has a master's of education, was excited to work in college administration. And she started this great job at the University of Pittsburgh, and one of the job benefits was free tuition. So she came there and thought, this is perfect. She wanted to do a PhD in higher ed administration, and here's, she's got this new job, and she's got free tuition. So she thought, perfect, I'll start my degree. Except that the Lord said no. She, she kept hearing no as she prayed about it, and she had this inner sense of dread, like it's wrong, like I'm not supposed to do this, and wrestled with it quite a bit in prayer. So God was saying, no, don't do this, but the circumstances were saying, it's free, sign up, start into that program. And anybody that knows someone that's done a PhD knows it takes a long time, you know, five years, I'd say on the minimum, right? But for many, it's longer than that. And here's the funny thing in retrospect when we look back. From that moment where the Lord was saying no, and Heather's thinking, circumstances say this is good, I should go for it. The Lord moved us so quickly and so far that there's no way she could have even gotten through the first semester of that program. In two and a half years from that moment, we left Pittsburgh, we moved to Charleston, we then moved to Sheffield, England. We then had a baby, and then we went to Houston and started a new church. All in two and a half years. She wouldn't have even gotten the coursework done. She'd have had to pull out of that right away. In the immediate circumstances, it looked like this is right, this is good. But God, who sees big picture, was saying, ah, this isn't, this isn't my plan. And the question is, will you follow the Lord, or will you follow the circumstances? That's the question for all of us. Will you respond in faith? Now, let me tell you about Abraham specifically. He was 75 years old in Genesis chapter 12 when God first comes to him and says, leave your father's house, go to, which is in northern Iraq, leave your father's house, travel all the way a thousand miles over to what is now modern day pa Palestine, and I'm going to show you the land that I'm sending you to. And then he says, 
through your offspring, all peoples will be blessed. So you're going to have generations of people, and they're going to possess this land. And right away, he finds a whole number of obstacles, circumstances that, that seem to threaten those promises. The first one is famine. He gets to this promised land, and there's famine. There's no food. It's drought. It's all dried up. So he and his wife, Sarah, have to travel. They flee down to Egypt where there's food. And when they get there, he decides to take some things into his own hands about his wife, who's really beautiful. So he lies and says, this is my sister, which is a half lie. And then she gets taken into the the leader's house there. But then God, who is his shield, steps in and starts to put punishment upon that house until the Pharaoh figures this out and gives her back to Abraham and then gives a whole bunch of stuff. He, he takes servants, male and female servants. He takes a bunch of cattle and sheep and uh, expensive stuff and goes back up into the promised land. So the first obstacle is drought, and God steps in as a shield and provides both human and material resources for him. But he gets up into the land, and he hits the next threat to the promise, which is inadequate pasture for all these sheep. So he and his nephew Lot are now in conflict because they can't have pasture for their sheep. So this time, he says, well, Lot, you pick where you want to go. If you want to go that way, that'll be your land, and then I'll go over to this land. Lot looks down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, beautiful valley. It's very fertile. It's got, you know, irrigation, whatever. He goes down there, and Abraham goes over here. But then quickly, he's caught up in a tribal war, and Lot gets captured, and all his people taken up to the north to a town called Dan. So we've got another problem. This land is going to be mine? Well, there's all these kings fighting for it, and I'm in the midst of a war. Now Abram has to go and fight in a war to rescue his nephew back, which God gives him victory, and he does. And when he comes back, he comes back with even more spoil. This time he tithes, which means gives 10% of it to a priest called Melchizedek, which is a whole other story. We're not going to go there. He gives a, a tenth of it to the Lord through this priest, and then the rest of it he gives to the other kings probably to placate them so that they don't get into more war, and he doesn't take any of the spoils. So that gets us to chapter 15. And God comes to him and says, fear not, Abram. Well, why does he have to say that? Well, because he's afraid. He's in the middle of five kings warring. He's in a land that isn't his own, that he thought was supposed to be his own, and he still doesn't have any offspring. And he's afraid. His, his nephew's been captured, and he's coming back from war, and he's just defeated. He feels defeated, even though he's, he made it through that battle. He's afraid. And God says, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. He gives him this encouraging word. To which the fourth obstacle or the fourth circumstance that threatens the promise is brought to the Lord. I don't have a son. And he speaks pretty boldly. He says, how is it that I'm going to have offspring? Eliezer, my you know, chief of my household is going to be my inheritor. He's going to get it all. Eliezer of Damascus, he's not even my own. How is it that I'm going to have offspring? And I like the Lord's response because he doesn't even name Eliezer. He just simply says, this man will not be your offspring, distancing him. This man will not inherit your stuff. That's, it's not going to go that way. Now, sometimes when you question God in the Bible, you see God be upset about that, and other times he's not. So, for instance, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, questions the angel Gabriel about how they're going to have a kid in their old age, and he is struck mute in, in punishment for nine months. Similarly, 
when the angel tells Mary she's going to deliver the Son of God, she asks a question, and she's given an answer. She's not um, in any way punished for that question. Here, he says, how is it that this is, your promises are going to come true for I'm old, and Eliezer is going to inherit everything? He doesn't get punished for that. His heart is right in asking the question. It's been 25 years. He's 100 years old, and he's asking a simple question. I'm getting close to the age when people start to die, and I still don't have a son. So how, how do these prom- You've just told me that my reward will be great. How is this going to happen? His circumstances don't seem to line up with the promise, with the Word of God. Now, on this side, it's so easy to look at it. Just like in your own story, when you've gone through a difficult season and you can look back, you can go, oh, I now see a bit of what God was doing. Well, for a man who's 100 and his wife was 90 at this point to have a baby, there's no question about how that happened. It's not just an unusual thing. It's an impossible thing. It never happens except with God who does the impossible. So God was making this so clear that he is the one who is going to fulfill his promises. He is going to do this. It's not just human. It's divine. But Abram in the moment can't see that. But God begins to share some things. And so he says, come outside and look up at the stars. See how many there are? Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. That's a great encouraging word. And here's the key verse. In verse 6, it says, and he believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. He said, because you're trusting my promises, even though you don't understand in the circumstances, I'm declaring you righteous because you're trusting in me. That's the important thing. God is a trustworthy Lord. That's what kind of God he is. Then he does something amazing. God enacts a Uh, an ancient pattern of doing a covenant. You know, if you want to enter into a a contractual relationship with someone today, you go to a lawyer, you draw up papers, you sign them, and if you break it, then the lawyers all sue you and you lose all your money. In olden days, the way they did it is they got a bunch of animals and they killed them and cut them in half and split them across an aisle, and then both parties would walk down the aisle like a duel, one like this. They'd pass through, and what they would be saying is, if I break my covenant vows, may I be like these dead animals? Or like when we were kids, we used to say, if we wanted to take an oath, and I don't recommend you do this, but we would say, I swear, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. It's terrible. But what we were saying is, I'm that serious about this. Now, the old way of doing this was, may it be unto me like these animals if I break the covenant. So here's what happens. Abraham prepares all of this, and then there's some foreshadowing. These um, unclean birds of prey come, and they try to eat the animals, and he drives them away, which is foreshadowing of conflict. This covenant is not going to come about easily. There's going to be difficulty. And then a sleep falls upon him, and he's in this sleep, and he has a dreadful dream. And in the dream, God says, Abram, I want you to know that for 400 years, your offspring are going to be slaves in Egypt. And then I'm going to bring them up out of Egypt into the promised land. You need to know that ahead of time. And then you see this smoking fire pot, which is symbolic of God's presence. We'll learn later in the Exodus that he is symbol- he's, he's manifesting his presence by a pillar of fire at nighttime and a pillar of smoke at daytime. Here's a smoking fire pot, and it goes between. This is all in a dream in, in Abram's mind. He sees it happen, and God goes through there. And what is amazing about it is Abram's asleep the whole time. Now, remember, I started this out by saying, we're a church that's extending grace. 
And the reason I went to this text is because it shows us how grace works. God does something we don't deserve, and he does it on our behalf. So Abram's asleep, and God goes through, and God is saying, in effect, may it be unto me if either of us break this covenant. May I die like these animals. And you say, well, how can God die? Well, that's how. The irony of the passage is God doesn't break his covenant word. He never does. His word is always true, and we are the ones who are faithless. He's faithful. We're faithless. And what does he do? He dies for us on the cross. That Jesus comes in, and he takes the curse of the covenant failure upon himself. God himself dies so that we can be given life. So I ask the question, how does God save? That's how he saves. He steps in and does for us what we can't do for ourselves. And what kind of a Lord is he? He's the kind of Lord who is a shield to defend, and he's the kind of a Lord who can see everything. He can see all the way to the end. And so in your circumstances, you can only see the immediate time and what just happened before that in your life. You can't see the whole picture, but God can. And this account of Abraham tells us something about God and his vantage point. And so it gives us the ability to trust him and go, well, when I look at it from the end of the story, I know what you were doing in Abraham's life, and I'm going to trust in my circumstances that you never change and that you're going to do the same thing, that you're going to be a trustworthy Lord, that your word is always good, and you're my Savior. This is who God is. And our shield, Abraham's shield, is our shield as well. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul picks this idea up in Galatians, and he says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law, in other words, your obedience, or by hearing in faith that you just have heard his promises and you trust him? How is it that God does this? How is it that he responds? He responds by faith, not because you are worthy or did anything right, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons and daughters of Abraham. And the Scripture foreseeing, I love this part, the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So in other words, the shield for Abraham is your shield if you're in Christ. The offspring of Abraham was going to be Jesus, and all who are in Jesus are the sons and daughters of Abraham. The promises of the covenant are all for you who believe in Jesus. And God did this all. That's what kind of a Lord he is. That's what kind of a Savior he is. Now, as we extend grace, we have to recognize how powerful that is, that God says, may it be upon me if you break the covenant. He does it for us. That's grace. That's an undeserved gift. The gospel, this book is full of that. And then the implications come. So what do we do with it? Well, here's my application, very simply. Trust him. Be patient, because the timeline might not be your timeline. It rarely is in the scriptures. And bear witness. So don't go out and tell people facts about God. Go and tell him, go and tell them of your experience of him. How has God proven to be this way in your story? What is he doing in your circumstances? How are you responding? And when you're not faithful, how is he still faithful? When we are faithless, he remains faithful. That's grace. And let's be a church that extends that out. And it comes out of not just facts, but personal experience of this God, the God of covenants, the God who brings us in and saves us. Would you pray with me? Lord, I love this account of your servant Abraham. 
And I thank you for the credit of righteousness you've given him. This is so rich to understand how much you love us. Lord, I pray that you would heighten our desire to experience you, not just know about you, but to know you. I pray for your spirit to come, that you would open our hearts to receive you. I ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.